what to do. And, and let's get into this story and see if you have the same sort of feelings that I do. So we talked yesterday about that with the betrothal of um, Jehovah, or Jesus Christ, to his people called Israel, later in the New Testament referred to as the church, in the Restoration today also referred to this as the church, um, that, um, that he offered in this sort of ancient ritual customs, he offered the bride a number of gifts. And the Jews celebrate those gifts as being the tabernacle, which is the way to learn how to return to the presence of the Lord. Uh, the tabernacle later became the temple. They celebrated also as the priestly clothing that was given as if it were the bridal clothing that would typically be given by the bridegroom to prospective bride. The bridal clothing that she was to wear for the wedding, and we talked quite a bit about that yesterday. And then also the third is that they believed that the law itself was a gift from the bridegroom. And when we think of the law in our culture today, we've come to think of it rather negatively. We've talked quite a bit about the law of Moses and what it is and what's done away and so on and so forth. But also just even the term law seems to be sort of a negative word for us often. But if we think that what the law to them meant, it was the five books of Moses and the prophets. So in other words, it's the scriptures. It's what um, Father Lehi sent Nephi and his brothers off to get from Laban at a great risk to their own lives because those scriptures were so valuable. But even more is that the scriptures, the scriptures contained the covenant. And the covenant that began with Adam and Eve, the covenant we call the new and everlasting covenant. And so the sense that this is a gift from God, the covenant, the new and everlasting covenant, one that we can cherish and that will help us to know how to come back into his presence. So what happens with Jehovah's bride, Israel? And as we tell the story, I'm going to again caution that I'm fairly sensitive to the fact that lots of people, whenever we talk about these things, sort of get fairly critical and judgmental of the Jews or the ancient Israelites. And they say, how could they not know and how can they do this? But I always think it's really important, and, and Elder Uchtdorf reminded, this, uh, reminded us of this in a general conference not long ago. The important thing for us when we hear these sorts of stories is to say, is it I? Is it I? What can I see? in this story that might be relating to me. And um, so I want to avoid that criticism. So let's talk about what happened to Israel. Uh, as we talked about in the first two um, hours together, is that Israel was willing at Mount Sinai and said, everything the Lord has asked of us, we'll do. But they were not really ready. And fear specifically overrode their ability to partake and receive the gifts the Lord had given them. I think that's the same kind of issue we are still struggling with today, is that sense of fear. We want to know what's going to happen um, ahead of time. And so Israel finally makes it into the Promised Land. Those of you who've been studying the Come Follow Me know that it was 40 years in the wilderness after the Golden Calf incident. And really, almost from the very day that they made it into the promised land. They were going after the other gods that the Lord has so specifically instructed them not to do. If you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, the Lord instructed Moses to tell his people, when you go into the promised land, 
remember to keep the covenant. And one way of keeping the covenant is to marry within the covenant. And the Lord said, if you marry outside of the covenant, then the, those that you marry will take your heart away from me, and their heart will go after other gods. And this is one reason he uses this metaphor of the marriage, because he wants us to understand that when we worship other gods, to him, it is as if we are betraying a marriage to him and breaking that covenant and turning our backs. So almost from the beginning, the children of Israel disregarded the, that um, instruction that they had received, and they began intermarrying, and they married outside of the covenant. And sure enough, just as had been prophesied in Deuteronomy 7, they start going after other gods. The Lord refers to that as them going after other lovers and after other husbands. And in fact, Baal means husband is to make it particularly interesting for you. So the Lord says, and so much of this is in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. The Lord said, surely as a wife treacherously departed from her husband, can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Now we just talked quite a bit about that yesterday, the sense of the temple robes, the temple garments, the wedding clothes, if you will. Can, can a bride forget that gift of the bridegroom? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Surely as a wife treacherously departed from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. So this is intimate and emotional language. Please notice it's in first person the same way as our Doctrine and Covenants. I love the Doctrine and Covenants because I always feel when I'm reading the doc Doctrine and Covenants, I'm hearing the voice of the Lord speak directly to me. Well, specifically with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, we also have a lot of first person like this, where you just can sense this, that the Lord is dictating directly to these prophets. And so let's talk about what did he mean about dealing treacherously. There was only one time that Israel, with all the tribes, were united, and that was under King David of the tribe of Judah, which had been prophesied in the patriarchal blessing given to Judah by Father Israel. In that blessing, Israel told Judah that the scepter would not depart from him until Shiloh come, Shiloh being another name for Jesus Christ or for the Messiah. And so we have David, the first king, that actually united Israel. And remember that all the tribes came to, to David and said, you are flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone. Ooh, that kind of sounds like marriage talk as well. And we want you to lead us. But that unification of the tribes of Israel was very short-lived. We have Solomon who followed David. And we know that Solomon married many, many wives, as many as a thousand wives. And with each of those, they were political alliances where in order to be politically tolerant, those wives were invited to bring their gods and their idols into Jerusalem. And in fact, it's recorded in the Chronicles that Solomon's wives had idols in the temple. So right away um, after David's death, we have this going on. Solomon, of course, is the one who built the temple and dedicated the temple, but that sort of peace and unity lasted for a very short period of time. So we have Solomon's wives who have been bringing in their gods and their idols, 
And then after Solomon, if you remember that, his son, Rehoboam, told the people in this greatest political speech of all time, if you think my dad gave heavy taxes to you, well, that's nothing. You ain't seen nothing yet. My taxes are going to be 10 times as heavy as my father's taxes were. And that political speech did not go over well. And in fact, then, Jeroboam, and don't you just love that these people have names that are so similar? Jeroboam, who's from the tribe of Ephraim, says, oh, we don't have any inheritance or any legacy with Judah. Let's go 10 tribes. Let's go up to the north. That's where their uh, land allotments were. And in order to make things easier for you, because, oh, if you keep the feast days, it's going to be too much work for you to go down to the temple in Jerusalem, which is what he was really worried about, is that they might unify again if they were to go down to the temple in Jerusalem. He said, I will make gods for you in the north and south of the, of the um, area called the Northern Kingdom, which is where the ten tribes lived. And we're going to call those gods... Jehovah, golden calf at the north, golden calf at the south, Dan and Beersheba, and we're going to call it Jehovah. So this is still our God, but we're worshiping him in the calf, in the calf uh, idol. And um, don't go down to the temple. Now at that time, we read in the scriptures that any of the Levites, the priests who ministered in the temple, any of those who wanted to stay with the true worship of Jehovah, left that area, went down, and lived in Jerusalem. This would include any families who also wanted to keep their religion pure. They moved down south, and that might explain how it is that Lehi, who is from Manasseh, is down south. Now, that would have meant his progenitors, because Lehi lived hundreds of years after this event. But it would, have, but it would mean that many of the families moved to the south. It also helped to cause the severe confusion we have today that we seem to call all Israelites Jews. And that is because anyone who went to the south, Judah is their leader. Judah has the king on the throne. And so to sort of differentiate themselves, they just start getting called the Jews, even though we have people like Lehi and others who are from other tribes. And I hope that that's clear because I think it's really important for us to understand the differentiation between the tribes and to also understand the role of each of the tribes of Israel. There's no such thing as a throwaway tribe. When John saw the celestial kingdom, the celestial city coming down in the book of Revelation, there was a gate with the name of each tribe engraved on the gate. So it's very important for us to have an understanding and appreciation and a respect for each of the tribes of Israel. Each one of them has a role. As it turns out, Ephraim, through Joseph and Judah both have leadership priesthood roles. If you look at Genesis 49 and 50, and particularly think of the JST version of that. And so there was this constant sort of friction between Ephraim in the north and Judah in the south over who's going to get to rule over Israel. And so in the northern kingdom, they set up their calves, they named them Jehovah. We talked about that there were idols in the temple. And this is what the Lord said about that in the book of Jeremiah. He says, What hath my beloved to do in mine house, seeing she hath wrought lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from thee? Now, you have to admit, this is very intimate language, and this is the kind of language that a husband 
would use towards a wife. And he is saying, in his house, what's his house? The temple. There is lewdness going on, and his wife has been unfaithful to him. Let's talk for just a moment about what those other gods might have been. So as I've already mentioned, Baal seemed to be the predominant uh, god of the Mesopotamian area, and Baal, that name meant husband. Then we had Ashtoreth, or Asherah, which is the female equivalent, or the wife of Yahweh that was in the temple. Now I'm going to emphasize that because I want you to think about it. There's very little time for us to really discuss, but I want you to consider this. Is that the people knew through the scriptures in Hebrew, you can hear a feminine voice oftentimes in the scriptures, particularly in Isaiah, that made it appear there might be a feminine god. And so they picked up the Canaanite goddess Asherah, and they thought, we're going to put her in the temple. She is going to be our heavenly mother. And in fact, like I said, they called her Yahweh's wife. She was Asherah. It was represented by a grove of trees. And if you read in the scriptures, during Josiah's reign, King Josiah's reign, one of the main things that Josiah does is he removes the grove from the temple. They're referring to Asherah. The way that Asherah was worshipped is through... Um, um, what was called sacred prostitution. And you can fill in the blank of what that means. So they took a heavenly mother, and this has happened throughout time, and they decided that if there's a heavenly mother and there's a heavenly father, well, we're, mm, let's put these two together, and we're going to bring fertility to our land, and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, that is what hap has happened for millennia every time goddess worship has come into being. So I'll let you think on that. Uh, then they have the god Chemosh and Moloch. I want to talk about Moloch for a second because um, the kings of Judah started to sacrifice their children to Moloch. Moloch was a god made of metal um, with hollow arms. You would fire in those arms. You put um, your child on the arms as an offering to the god Moloch. And so we read in um, the book of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, that Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, offered his son up to Molech. So the Lord Jehovah looked at this as a terrible abomination and a betrayal of him. And so he said there would have to be a consequent chastening. After he had called so many prophets to say, you've got to stop doing this, you have to put these idols away. Basically what the Lord said, you have left me no choice. You, first of all, you've been invited into my presence. You're, you don't want to come into my presence. And now you also don't want to hear my word, the word that I'm giving to you through the prophets. And therefore, he had to remove his presence. Ezekiel tells a very painful account of seeing the Shekinah, which is the visible presence of God. Remember, that's the glory or the fire of God. He sees the Shekinah leave in a chariot, much as we see Ezekiel leave, or excuse me, Elijah leave in a chariot. Ezekiel sees the Shekinah leave the temple in a chariot because the temple has become unclean and corrupt because of the gods that have been brought in. So because Jehovah is no longer, quote unquote, present to protect them, he removes his hand of protection and natural consequences carry out the chastening that takes place. 
So the Lord says, and, and you and I want you to I want you to think as we read these scriptures, as we talk to Angela said about the God of the Old Testament having a better understanding. Most people think God of the Old Testament is so mean. When we read these, I want you to see, does it sound mean to you? So the Lord says through Jeremiah, then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. In other words, they did not want to hear the voice of the bridegroom as it came through the prophets. So he's going to leave. And the bride is going to leave as well. I should have mentioned and neglected it that the ten tribes were carried away fairly early on. We know that Judah was last. And so Jeremiah and um, Isaiah and Ezekiel specifically speak directly to Judah for the most part. And then the Lord says this, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord of hosts. For of old times I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou saidest, I will not transgress, when upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest playing the harlot. So again, when we see the mention of groves and trees and high hills, high hills uh, in Israel, uh, that is where oftentimes the people would set up the groves or the pole that would be called Asherah that included the um, sacred prostitution. And so he says, you are literally playing the harlot up there on the hills. And he is saying, I'm going to remove my hand of protection and natural consequences are going to come in and correct you. How is she become a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces. How is she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. So what happened when the Lord removed his hand of protection, so we know Israel is a choice land located between major empires. It was sort of the thoroughway. When Egypt was going to go fight Babylon or when Assyria was going to come down and fight Egypt, the way through was through the land of Israel. And so with the Lord's hand of protection being removed, those conquering armies just came through naturally. Now, when the Lord is referring to those neighbors as her lovers, and he'll call them her false lovers, it's because despite the Lord telling them through the prophets, you probably remember the story in Isaiah 7, and a child shall be born and he should be called Wonderful Counselor of Money. Um, that is actually in a prophecy given to King Amos of Israel, um, that, uh, excuse me, of Judah, not to fight the northern tribes and not to fight against Syria. And the Lord tells King Amos of Judah, he said, they're not even going to exist. Don't even worry about them. They're not even going to exist any longer. Because Assyria, while all these kingdoms are fighting for control of this land, Assyria comes in and takes over Syria and Israel, the northern tribes, and carries the northern tribes away. And so the, um, Amos, King Judah of Amos, had been talking about King Amos of Judah had been talking about making a political alliance with Assyria against Syria and Israel. And God said, don't. And so when he's saying, your other lovers, he's making an analogy 
that all the political alliances that the people made on both sides, either the northern kingdom with the ten tribes or the southern kingdom of Judah, he said, you're making alliances as if those are lovers instead of turning to your husband to protect you. Follow? I know I'm, I'm, I know I'm sharing a lot here. And so he's talking about, again, Israel as a bride who's weeping sore. Now, Angela, I'm going to put you on the spot. As we read this, does this sound like a really mean and awful God? All my lovers have forgotten thee. They seek thee not. And again, these are the political alliances they've made. For I have wounded thee with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of thine iniquity, because thy sins were increased. Why criest thou for thine affliction? Thy sorrow is incurable for the multitude of thine iniquity. Because thy sins were increased, I have done these things unto thee. But I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. So Angela, just, I'm going to keep you on the spot for a few minutes here. I think it's really important because I hear a lot of things in church, a lot of things we want to believe or that we repeat. And I think it's really important to take a look at this from our dear President Nelson in the um, February 2003 Ensign. President Nelson said, while divine love can be called perfect, infinite, enduring, and universal, it cannot correctly be characterized as unconditional. Like President Nelson, <clears throat> if we were to paint that over what happened with the scattering of Israel, might be saying is that we have to live according to the covenants that we have made if we want to have the protection of the Lord. Now what's interesting here, and I really urge you to, to read this article in its fullness, is that how often I hear and have heard here and uh, here in church and heard from a state president last week that, um, that Christ never judged anyone. I've heard that numerous times in church. Christ never judged anyone and um, that his love is unconditional for us. So I recommend that you read this talk from President Nelson. I'm gonna say it again. While divine love can be called perfect, infinite, enduring, and universal, it cannot correctly be characterized as unconditional. So I want you to be thinking about that as we read about what happened to Israel. Because we're going to read about the tremendous grief and mourning the Lord felt for what was happening to his people. And yet because of their breaking of the covenant, specifically how that was going to affect the rising generation, as we call them today, the young people who didn't stand a chance. Um, specifically because of that, chastening had to occur. In fact, speaking about chastening, Elder Christofferson said this, divine chastening has at least three purposes. One, to persuade us to repent. Two, to refine and sanctify us. And three, at times to redirect our course in life to what God knows is a better path. I would like to speak of one particular attitude and practice we need to adopt if we are to meet our Heavenly Father's high expectations. It is this, willing, willingly to accept and even seek correction. So this, this might be a, a wonderful opportunity for us to examine our own lives and think of that. All right, Angela, here it is for you. So this is, just a moment, please. This is Jehovah's response 
to the people being driven away and driven out. I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Therefore, thou shalt say this word unto them, let mine eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people is broken with a great breach and with a very grievous blow. What do you think, Angela? Is he mean? How, 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 does, how does the Savior feel about what is happening to his people? He's, he's heartbroken. He's heartbroken. In fact, believe me, these scriptures are not hard to find. They are full in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Speaking of which, in Isaiah, he says, Do you think I sent my people away like a man who divorces his wife? Where then are the papers of divorce? Do you think I sold you into captivity like a man who sells his children as slaves? No, you went away captive because of your sins. Remember the verse that said your own sins will be your chastisement. You were sent away because of your crimes. Why did my people fail to respond when I went to them to save them? Why did they not answer when I called? And so these natural consequences come into play and so still in Isaiah and Isaiah 49 um, looking ahead to a future day when the Lord redeems his people uh, Zion says they've been roaming for a long time they have um, forsaken him and they feel like he must he must naturally have forsaken them and when they see what he is going to do to redeem them it's almost as if they're protesting how could this be possible and, they, and Zion saith, the Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman, but he answers, can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. So we talked yesterday about the tokens that were exchanged in a marriage anciently. We talked about the importance of blood as it pertained to uh, uh, marriage in ancient times, and that it's the blood of the bridegroom that is actually healing and consummating this marriage, and he carries these wounds in his hands. So we want to talk about what is the bitter cup? What is the bitter cup, and how does that bitter cup come into play for the redemption of the bride of Christ? And so we read that, and we read both in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and in, in Isaiah about this bitter cup of consequence that is put into the hand of the bride Israel for her uh, betrayal of God. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. And they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then took I the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink, unto whom the Lord had sent me, to wit, Jerusalem, and the cities of Judah, and the kings thereof, and the princes thereof, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, and a curse, as it is this day. So this bitterness, if you will, is the consequence 
of our actions, the bitterness of our betrayal, the bitterness of our turning away. We might even say the bitterness of our anger that we often feel over the things that have happened to us in our lives. But it is a concoction, it's a brew we make of ourselves, and it's the cup of justice, as it is called in the scriptures. In Ezekiel, it describes that Ezekiel is supposed to figuratively, symbolically, give this cup to both Samaria, which is the capital of the northern tribes, and to Jerusalem, which is the capital of the southern tribes. And it says that they are sisters, and that they have to have this cup of consequence, of bitterness, put into their hands, and that when they drink of the cup, it's so terrible, it's as if it scalds going down, and it says that they clutch at their chest because of it burning, and they clutch and scratch at their chest because of this terrible bitter brew. In the scriptures, it's called the cup of justice. It's, we, when we talk about the law of justice and the law of mercy, it is what is to follow when a covenant is broken. But in Isaiah, the Lord says this, Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God, that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. But what do we know about justice and mercy? Justice has to be fulfilled. Justice has to be finished. So someone has to drink that cup. Someone has to drink of that bitter brew of the consequences of betrayal and idolatry and turning away and bitterness and angry. And so Jesus himself, as the bridegroom, is the one who takes the cup of justice and with his mercy drinks it and drinks it to its bitter contents at the end. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparation unto the children of men. Now, Elder Maxwell helped us to understand what Christ meant when he said that he might not drink it and shrink. And what Elder Maxwell explained to us is that Christ didn't want to do any halfway measures. In other words, he didn't want to begin and then recoil and not finish and drink those bitter dregs because it was so awful, but that his intention was that he would drain it with the law of justice, it would have to be drained. I once did an experiment with um, seminary students when we were reading through these scriptures, and I challenged them to make the most bitter cup that they could make it with. We had hot sauce and chilies and, and all of that, and um, they really went to town with it. Let me tell you, they're really serious about getting it right. And, um, and they made a terrible brew. And then I asked them, we read through these scriptures, and I asked them to drink it. And of course, they didn't want to drink it. Some of the boys kind of powered through the first couple of steps. And then we talked about what it meant that when each of us has been brewing our own cup of consequence through the week, and depending upon where we are in daily repentance and daily turning our hearts to God, that brew we're, we're making for the week can become quite bitter. 
And how would we feel to drink it down? And some of us insist we do want to drink it down. We, we insist we don't want help. But what a gift we have. I picture myself every week as going to the sacrament table and standing in line. I picture myself holding my bitter cup that I made of resentment or, or jealousy or you name it. I picture myself in line at the sacrament table holding my bitter cup. And then I picture the Savior taking that cup and drinking it down and handing me in its place this cup of pure living water. And I hope that we can come to really understand how real this is. When we talk about cups, we talked this week earlier about Passover cups being important symbols of covenant making. and. Um, it helps us to have a better understanding of what Christ was talking about when he said that he was going to partake of the bitter cup and that he would, that he wouldn't shoot from it. We know that when he was in the garden, that even though, as Isaiah said, that he has set his face like a flint to perform his mission, that when he was in the garden, it was so much worse than he had anticipated. That he fell on his face. But he did it out of his love for us and drank the bitter cup and gave to us in his place the pure cup, the pure cup of the sacrament. Jesus said, they say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him to become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. Yet yeah, return again to me, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I'd love to hear some thoughts or impressions you have at this point about how does this help you to see Christ as the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Any thoughts you'd like to share, please? I know there is. In fact, um, President Eyring said that this is a love story. It's the greatest love story ever told. And uh, President Eyring said that he hoped that he could be as faithful and pure as Christ is in that way. I love it too. And the few stories we know of President Eyring, we can say he is certainly living to that. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Please. Beautiful. Thank you. We talked about he has many different names, and each of those names tells different characteristics of his nature. And it's worth studying those different titles that he has to help us to understand how fully 
fully rounded he is. In fact, um, I remember um, when I joined the church, uh, I got a lot of a lot of hard times from family members in joining the church, and, and they insisted to me that we don't worship the same Jesus. And as I became older, I thought, well, actually, we do worship a fuller Jesus. We worship a Jesus that we believe was God in the pre-mortal realm, and that is all of these various titles, and so much more um, than certainly what I had been taught in my youth. One more comment, please. Takeaways this thus far about <clears throat> Jesus Christ being Jehovah, the Old Testament, and what you've learned from this study, please. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? It's been so deep in my heart my whole life, yes. Um, I think it just has planted this awe um, in my heart for him and how the depth of his love for us. All right, so again in Isaiah, and um, Isaiah 54 happens to be one of my very, very favorites. And this is when um, the prophecy is, is that toward the end times the Gentiles are going to bring children to this barren wife who has thought she's been lost. And in fact, the very first verse in Isaiah 54 is, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. And uh, she asks in, the, in chapter 54, Israel asks, how is this possible? How is this possible? Because I've been wandering to and fro, and, and I left you, and I haven't had any children. And, and that is a beautiful image of the, the sense of barrenness in terms of barren in the fruit of the covenant, barren in accepting the love of God, barren in sharing that love with others. And she says, how is this possible? And he tells her she's going to bind these children that the Gentiles have brought, and this is the gathering of Israel, that she's going to bind these children on her like a bride binds her bridal ornaments on. And this is the answer when she asks, how is it possible? For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou hast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. I'm curious how this story so far affects your understanding of unconditional love. Because I think that in, there are ways that we can say this is unconditional. He will, his, his work is to redeem us. He will keep his promises. How has this affected your understanding of what unconditional love means? Please, Renan.
I love that. Thank you so much. Renan has talked about that the emphasis on his having to hide his face from us for a moment. And she related that to the times that she felt like she had said things to her children. She regretted that she had to hide her face because she couldn't bear what they were saying. Well, I couldn't help but think when Renan was talking about how our Heavenly Father had to hide his face for a moment while the Savior was in Gethsemane and on the cross. And, and it was part of his love. So. I wonder if the hiding the face is also that he couldn't bear to see what we were doing. Beautiful, thank you. Please, Dave. This is the acting out for us of justice and mercy and what it means to be encircled in the arms of mercy, encircled in the robes of righteousness, encircled in his love. Um, so that when, if you remember that Father Lehi, when he had the vision of what was going to happen to Israel, do you remember what his first response was? He saw the Babylonians coming in vision. He saw it as a great fire that was going to come and destroy the people. And the very first words that he said, he knelt down and said, oh, how merciful is our God. And he said that in relationship to seeing the chastening that was going to happen. In other words, chastening is merciful. I loved Brother Wilcox in general conference when he said, the Lord loves you completely, but he loves you too much to leave you where you are. Please. Do you mind standing and just kind of facing so everyone can hear you? It's in John 15, verse 10. And it makes sense when you think about this, this conditional type of love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And they know that I have periods of my life where I stray and Thank you. Please, really loud, please. Yeah, so I've, I've struggled with uh, unconditional love for years. I, I've always thought, well, if I'm in sin, he doesn't love my sin. So I've, I've, I've struggled with it for a long time. I heard a word used as a, as a way to describe it, but I think it's better. It's unalienable love. So unalienable love. Never, it's always there available to us. Like we have certain rights that are that's 
that's right. We are the ones who move away. So in other words, we're the ones that are insisting to keep drinking from that awful cup. We're the ones. And that what he asks of us is that in pure humility and acknowledgement, we go to him with our bitter cup. And, and he will take it from us. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. For I know the thoughts that I have towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. In other words, the expected destruction of Israel. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. And I will turn away your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. So brothers and sisters, those times that we are, we find ourselves in the wilderness, so to speak, and invariably we end up in the wilderness because uh, it's, it's going to be a time of proving, a time of testing, a time of learning. Through Ezekiel, the Lord told his people, they said, I will bring you into the wilderness, and there I will plead, to you, plead with you face to face as I pled with your fathers that I might bring you into the covenant. So the question is, what will it take for us to come into the covenant with Christ? What will it take? He is inviting us. He continues to invite us. He has reassured us, even when you are straying, even when you've turned away, he says, just return to me. Just return to me. Uh, my favorite story is in the book of Hosea, which is a metaphor and a type of Jesus Christ and the bride. And it says um, that he will give her a new heart, that he will cleanse her. And it says that it only took this moment that she has been walking this dusty, terrible road, that he has watched her go into caves with other lovers, and that he leaves corn and oil. He follows after. He's not going to press himself on her. And that he leaves corn and oil on the stones outside of the caves. And when she comes out, she doesn't realize it's him that left that for her. She gives the credit to her lovers. But he still watches and waits and follows after, waiting for her heart to turn. And then it says that she's basically, she's been through it all. It's been years of, de of degradation. And she is sitting by the side of the road. No one wants her anymore. She's not attracted to those lovers. And it says that she thinks, she just thinks, it was better for me when I was with my first husband. And with the thought, with the thought, brothers and sisters, he then reveals himself to her. And he comes to her and he cleanses her and it says that he took her, he will take her to the valley of hope and teach her how to sing again as she did in her youth. And he says then he will be betrothed to her forever and she will call him husband. And so this is the great story from beginning to end. God has told us the whole thing of Christ's role in our life from the beginning to the end. That it's up to us to decide how we're going to take that path, how rocky that path will be for us, and how quickly will we turn to him. But he is faithful, and 
He is our Redeemer. He has come out of the bitter cup. As we read from the scripture in Isaiah yesterday, past tense, he is the Lord who hath redeemed us. He hath redeemed us. He has already done it. All we have to do is to accept it. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.